Hello again. You're here with Nick Ives, and this is Online with Light, a podcast for Freemasons where we talk about things that may interest you about Freemasons, and hopefully we spark some conversations. I'm here with the right worshipful grand historian of the state of Connecticut, our worshipful brother, Andrew Malillo. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Nick. How are you? I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, I know there's a lot going on, and we're in a, a crisis time. This is the the era of COVID-19, and I appreciate you accepting my invitation to uh, come on the show and talk a little bit about it so that we can hopefully have some conversations out there in the craft about it. I think it's no better time to have a conversation about uh, COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, let's, let's learn a little bit about you first for someone who's never uh, connected with you before. And could you tell us uh, how your Masonic journey has been so far and how you became Grand Historian? Uh, that's a long story, but I'll, I'll condense it. Um, but uh, so far, I'm having a blast as Grand Historian. It really is a, a dream job opportunity within the within the craft uh, for someone who likes history and, and, and genealogy, but uh, just a strong passion for, for the craft and, and, and whatnot. But um, how I got started was I knew I always was interested in joining, um, but I went to college, did the, did the college thing, and then I thought to myself, maybe uh, I'll look into it. And I went to school to Northeastern in Boston. And I passed the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, not even knowing it was a Masonic building or, or whatever that was at the time in my life. But I saw all the, the mosaic on the front and I saw the, the working tools. And I, I work at a civil engineering surveying firm and a lot of the tools we use there were also on the edifice. So I just assumed it might've been a a museum of sorts, and I, they asked me when I walked in if I wanted to take a tour, and I quickly realized my mistake, that it had nothing to do with uh, engineering directly, per se, but <laughs> was a Masonic Grand Lodge, so I felt like a fool, told my boss about it, who happened to be a brother, and uh, he kind of laughed at me, and I just, that kind of re-sparked the interest, and then when I got a job in Manhattan, um, I interviewed for a job about two blocks from the Grand Lodge of New York, and the square and compasses just kept popping up in my life accidentally, or maybe not so. And so that kind of just, once I saw the Grand Lodge of New York banner at my first job, I said, you know what, I'll petition. And um, I'm a native of Greenwich. So I petitioned my local lodge, Acacia 85. I went to about, went to their dinner for maybe about five months to see if I liked them. And, uh, and then I filled out a petition and the rest has been, the rest has been history. And, through that, through that time of becoming a Mason to now, um, my passion for history has always been there prior to becoming a Mason. And I descend from a lot of the, the family, earliest families in Connecticut and New England. So I, I saw a lot of overlap with the names. I thought, hey, this is a great opportunity to look at the records and kind of build to the local history. And so I had been transcribing the minute books and researching and reading and, and adding to the, the, the history book of the Keisha Lodge and Union 5. And, and uh and new canaan uh, with harmony 67 and it just kind of took off from there and i started writing a bunch of different works and um just reading and diving into the records and kind of making it into a cohesive story of the lives of these masons that came before and uh the current grandmaster recommended me to uh past grandmaster johnson for possibly um filling the vacancy of late uh gary littlefield our right worship brother gary littlefield and i thought you know i had a fat chance in hell to get it based on my masonic age and biological age i thought you know 
is nice enough to recommend recommend me, but I, I gave him some I gave the grandmaster some writing samples that we talked about just over an hour um, and what kind of vision I had for the publication and the kind of work I wanted to do as grand historian and uh, he called me back and said he was going to appoint me and I was both surprised uh, shocked and very happy. And you stepped into the shoes of right worship brother Gary Littlefield, who was a great grand historian. But I got I got to say, you're really stepping up. I just read the paper today. I got the newspaper yesterday in the mail. Uh, you're doing some fantastic work in the in writing for the Connecticut Freemasons and and sharing that history. And uh, it looks like I think we're lucky. You're so young. We'll we'll have have you in the fraternity for a long time. We hope so. Uh, congr- congratulations! Don't tempt the universe out there. But, uh, <laughs> You know, um, Gary Littlefield is actually the, my 11th cousin one time removed. We're both descended from Edmund Littlefield, um, which I thought was pretty pretty cool. And, and I shared that with his wife, his widow, Marcy. And, um, and uh, one of the things that uh, I've been worried about is, you know, trying to, you know, such a, a youngin like myself stepping into a, a role that was filled by Gary and, and, uh, and Case before him. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure I I kept the the institute uh, the office rather what it what it was, and I got a call from past Grandmaster um, Hawkins, who served as Grandmaster in 1993, and he left me a very interesting voicemail. I I got nervous that I was going to get a spanking. I called him back, and he he congratulated me on doing a, a a fine job, and he just recently donated his Masonic library to me, and I can't tell you some of the fascinating books that are in this collection. I'll have to. I'll have to show them to you sometime. That's great. Well, congratulations on all that. And I, I'm happy that although you started in Massachusetts, got more serious in New York, you ended up in the Grand Lodge of Connecticut. So, uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, Rhode Island's next. No, I'm just, <laughs> that's great. No, 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 no. So our subject today is we're going to be looking back a little bit at the Spanish flu. And we're going back in time to 1918 when this took place, obviously, because of uh, coronavirus. And we want to learn a little bit about the past so we can kind of think about the future a little bit. And could you tell us a little bit about what life was like before the Spanish flu affected Connecticut back, way back in 1918? Yeah, so Connecticut was an industrializing state back then, and, and there was a lot of new immigrants, a lot of population growth, a lot of in, industrial growth, and, and so it was it was a pretty busy, bustling place. Uh, the cities we know today we were very different um, back then. Uh, and um, and it was one of those things where, with all of that population, obviously people and businesses are on top of each other. Sanitary measures might might not have been the same. I mean, there used to be just in Manhattan and in parts of Connecticut, there used to be water fountains that were shared by a communal spoon, and they got rid of that actually during the Spanish flu uh, epidemic because they realized it's probably not a great way uh, to prevent the spread. So. It was an interesting time, a much more open, trusting time. And and when the Spanish flu hit, um, it killed about 675,000 across the country. Connecticut's share of that throughout the whole epidemic, as they refer to it, was 9,000. And you see in newspapers, you know, calls for wearing masks in, uh, if you visit a theater or crowd. So they weren't restricting uh, gatherings, and they weren't restricting certain places. They did close down bars in some areas and other institutions, but you, if you did visit a crowd or, or, or walk outside, you did have to wear a mask. Um, and because the flu was like any other thing, the initial 
onset wasn't too much panic. But then as it became, when the second wave hit, that's that's what people don't understand is in Connecticut, the second wave was the deadliest. It, uh, with the 9,000 total deaths, 5,000 of those were in October alone. And um, it gets it gets bad to a point where um, the Bridgeport Telegram, in a bit of uh, dark humor, uh, wrote a wrote in their paper on October 21st, 1918. Uh, you mustn't cough. You mustn't sneeze. You mustn't keep out. You must keep out of draft or breeze. You mustn't laugh. You mustn't cry. You must guard both mouth and eye. And they make these little poems and syllogisms to kind of help you remember to keep safe. But you were still walking around, so it wasn't um, it wasn't like what we see today with the shutdowns. But life was certainly altered, uh, and there were certainly uh, you know people were you know um, they had their their guard on. And you mentioned a first wave and a second wave. Now, uh, I, I had a conversation with someone years ago. We were talking history, and he was an older gentleman. And I said, you know, I, I heard your – did you say your dad was in World War One? He said, yeah, but he didn't do much. I said, well, what did he do? He said, well, he was actually quarantined at a ship in the Brooklyn shipyard. And, the, mm-hmm. and he was in the Navy, and they never let him leave port because they said, well, there's a suspicion of Spanish flu. We don't want to infect the rest of the troops. So they fed him well. And they kept him on a ship and he watched the war happen from the ship. Wow. I, and and I feel like I, it was a, a chapter of history that I didn't understand very well because the the World War ended, the first one, uh, around 1918. Uh, it was Armistice, correct? 1918 and then the, yeah, the peace was in 1919. Uh, we got into it very late and because uh, we didn't really want to, to, to get involved intimately at, at all, but... It just happened to work out that way in the end. But um, the one thing that the Spanish flu did, which alarmed a lot of people, and, and thank God isn't happening now, um, is it it killed, uh, you know, it, it attacked and uh, the immune systems and killed a lot of uh, 20, 30, and 40 year olds. And uh, a lot of people um, who know these types of things have, have looked into it. And one theory is that. A lot of the older generation had already gone through something like this and had the immunization to it, while younger younger generation did not. And that was, you know, almost 700,000 people, and, and, and a sizable portion of the majority were, you know, 50 and below. That's a cause for an alarm. So, and yet, even then, you don't see you don't see those measures. But yeah, it was it's one of those things where you see a lot of uh, camps. For the military have quarantine sections and some some people never even went to war uh and then think about it this way too you have you have a massive influenza spread while there's a world war and some businesses being shut down i mean that's a lot i mean you got a global war plus a, a, a epidemic and not an ideal situation so you just quarantine whoever and wherever they were whatever organization they're in whether it's the army or civilian life it certainly compounds the problem. And, uh, and and thinking about like vaccinations and, and from my memory, vaccinations are a, a something that happened in the 20th century. Uh, it seems like like what you just mentioned, how uh, people had a natural immunity if they were older. Uh, it doesn't seem like vaccinations were happening widespread at that time. Is that correct? I, I you, did, you know, don't quote me on this, but I don't believe so. I mean, it, it was from World War One with the, the um with the treaty with the Germans that we got the, their state secret of Tylenol. So 
this was medi you know medicine was just really becoming modern in that sense uh, around that time but this this definitely was a wake-up call for for doctors to look at what was going on that's interesting and I, I know that um my wife makes me get a flu shot now i i swore off it for years and she said that your modern science demands you get a flu shot so i do now but uh i, I fought it for a long time uh, so we've talked I a little still don't do it. yeah yeah <laughs> Um, I'm curious now, free, Freemasonry in Connecticut was happening around that time. So there is a written record of what Freemasons were thinking about, what they were worried about in 1918. And there's a lot going on. Uh, what was the focus for Freemasons in Connecticut and how are they responding to all these troubles? The major, the, the one thing that really surprised me when I, I searched, I tried to do two things. I wanted to look, obviously the Grand Lodge proceedings for, uh, I did 19, 17, 18, 19, and 20 just to be thorough to make sure I didn't miss anything uh, for the Grand Lodge proceedings. And then I looked in local minute books for Acacia Lodge 85 in Greenwich and due to its proximity to New York. And then I had uh, uh, brother David Stewart from um, Temple Lodge 16 in Cheshire look through his minute books to see what was going on over there. And what I found most amazing was the, was the silence uh, on the written record uh, relative to the influenza uh, um, epidemic, they they really their main focus was World War One and fighting the war effort. When I went through the minutes, uh, I I started with the, around fall and winter of 1917 with Acacia, and they had a Red Cross drive, which seems to be repeated again and again, and as well with uh, Temple 16. So that was definitely World War One. Um, the Red Cross drive was definitely gathering supplies and material and money for for the war, and then then you go through the year 1918 and you see you know things like uh, Brother Elias Peck, past master, reports sick but improved. Also Brother Avery, also Brother Austin, also you know, and then Miss Guyon, daughter of past master. So people you could see that people were getting sick and relying on the lodge to help them out and reporting accordingly. And they did it, ended up helping the daughter of past master Samuel Guyon and. Um, sent her to the home, the Masonic home up in Wallingford with uh, $10 a month and a box of oranges uh, each month. Uh, but other than that, um, you don't really see anything. Now, in Greenwich, the Board of Health had, um, had, had issued an order that all, pu all public institutions are gatherings for the month of October, which was the deadliest month, be shut down. So other than October, and the Grand Lodge kind of followed the same thing. Everyone kind of took a step back in October of 1918 and said, well, this is, this is bad. The second wave is really bad. So they kind of took a step back and, uh, and stopped meeting. And you can see uh, in the Grand Lodge proceedings that uh, he gave the Grand Master, um, uh, William English at the time, gave dispensations for certain lodges not to meet. Um, so most lodges were still meeting. Um, some stopped in October, others asked for dispensation to move their charter to a neighboring town because, for example, with Continental Lodge 76 in, in uh, Waterbury, Waterbury is hit particularly bad in October where a thousand deaths uh, were reported of that 5,000 just for October. So they they uh, they asked for dispensation to meet uh, at the building um, uh, uh, at Federal Lodge number 17. So, but other than that, and then when November and December come back, you got district deputies making the rounds and people are brothers are traveling to other lodges. Uh, there's visitors and people are moving around. Um, 
there's definitely reports of people being sick, but the lodges did not stop. I thought it was interesting how you mentioned that certain brothers reported sick. Uh, and, you know, we always do sickness and distress and, and I often, uh, you know, will bring up someone who's a lodge member who's not feeling well, and, and we still do that today. But I, it's almost mm-hmm. like you don't realize the historical impact of entering that into the record, that it creates a, an image of what was happening in lodge at that time. And, and now as a historian, you looking back, it must be very interesting to see uh, the context that that gives. Yeah, if, if, if um, when you see in one meeting three three people and a and a daughter of a mason being uh, reported as sick i mean that's very noticeable and obviously with such such a growing epidemic at that time it, it definitely creates a pattern and you see okay so these were the people struggling during that time and thank god they recuperated and they were able to get help but it, it shows it shows it puts it into context that way but it also shows that i mean this is the time before you know like like today where a lot of people believe the federal government should be solving everything back then this is what this is why the lodge was there right this is why this is why this was this was what this was masonry in action where there was little other recourse and brothers needed help and and committees would be established to go and support those brothers and give them any assistance and need that they required and um it, it's uh it, it's just a fascinating thing to see and to put into context and and if i can kind of jump off of that one one thing i'd love to see and kind of take this one step further and build a more complete picture you know i encourage lodges especially with a lot of downtime um i've been trying to encourage lodges to transcribe their minute books uh, and make those into word documents and and if we can do that here's a perfect question and example or situation of if we had every minute book of every lodge transcribed we could pinpoint dates and pull up specific information much more quickly and then compile a more comprehensive list of all the names of brothers who were sick and who was helping them and and, and uh, who, who might have died during that time or any emergency reports reported uh, at that time. So what I see here in Greenwich is a, a slow buildup of sickly people, a temporary shutdown in October, and then it's just back to normal, like, like nothing was going on. But besides the pandemic, in every, I shouldn't say every, but in a majority of, of minute recordings, it's what's happening with the war effort because there was more people from the lodge leaving to go fight than there were people dying from the influenza. So it was much more prevalent on, on their mind, the domination of continental Europe and all of their friends and brothers leaving to go fight. That's very interesting. And I, I I'm glad you brought up that question about digitizing the minutes. Uh, I, if I'm under the understanding that Grandview can store some of this, is that right? And then that would make it more accessible yeah. to you and other historians throughout the state. Absolutely. And, and that's the, you know, you, you don't want to, the more information, the more raw data we can collect from transcribing minutes, the better historians can one, create a f- fuller picture, but also pull up information much more quickly, instead of wearing and tearing the books to death, uh, and, and, and having to read each page and try and find something where when it's all digitized, you can pull up information with relative ease and leave the original record intact and and untouched uh, because these old books are uh, some of them are struggling pretty bad. 
And I can say my mother lodge is Meridian Lodge 77. We uh, have a bunch of books, and they're stored in a metal cabinet, and there's no hermetic seal on that. And there's been a few times we'll take the books out. And while we're careful, uh, digitizing would certainly help us. And we're trying to figure out our story. Uh, the digitization would make it easier, and we could share it with people like yourself and other great historians. And you mentioned uh, Brother Dave Stewart over there. He'd, he'd love to get his hands on some of this stuff. Oh, what what uh, what uh, Brother Stewart's been doing over at Temple 16, the way he's organized and cataloged everything and has every minute book and boxes and in a metal cabinet. Uh, uh, just it was uh, music, music to my ears when, when he explained everything he was doing. Well, let's hope we get more of that. Um, yes. think, thinking about the, the pandemic yesterday and the pandemic today, uh, 1918 feels like a long time ago, but it's really just 102 years and time seems to go very quickly. Uh, what parallels are, are you picking up from your study of history and masonry and, and how we're responding today? What kind of pattern are you seeing historically? And, and what are your thoughts on that? Oh, um, I, well, I, I see some parallels, obviously the wearing of face masks, certain, certain public places being closed um happily i don't see a parallel in the total death count um so far i think in connecticut it's around 2500 or 20 2700 somewhere around there and with a projection of 4500 come mid-august but um you know i think we're still kind of playing this out in the initial phase you know, I hope I'm wrong that there won't be a second wave, but that seems to be the historical trend. And so I think we should be vigilant about that. And while uh, while the lodges didn't really shut down too bad uh, in 1918, it's obviously very different from today where based on state, uh, local, state, and federal uh, government orders, uh, the lodges have been shut down for, for safety reasons. And I think while the numbers don't match Thankfully, the numbers of uh, 1918, I think it's still, uh, Masonically speaking, a good thing to do because a lot of a lot of the lodges have still older members still regularly attending, and God forbid uh, they get they get uh, they get the virus. That obviously would would not be a good thing. So, I just see a much more aggressive response today um, than I than I read in the in the limited sources from 1918. So. There's some parallels to precaution and, and, and public gatherings, but um, very different in terms of total response. That's interesting. And how can we today capture our story so that if there's another pandemic, another 102 years, and someone looks back and says, I wonder what was going on in uh, Connecticut Freemasonry in 2020, how can lodges themselves kind of capture, even though we're not meeting, how can we capture our story so historians like yourself can someday tap into it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a secretary for my mother lodge, and um, as as a as someone who writes things as a historic-minded person, I tend to provide more detailed information for posterity's sake. And I think one of the most frustrating things that historians encounter is you have like a very important time period, and so little information is written. And just because you're not meeting doesn't mean that when you when the lodge reconvenes whenever that is that the secretary maybe puts a little snippet in there saying we didn't meet because of this and here were, here's what our lodge or lodge members went through and now we're happily reconvened on this date such and such and provide a little context for posterity it'll take a little longer and it's a little cumbersome but 
I think if you're looking, if you're looking to show, if you're looking for posterity to learn something, you just, you have to, you have to write it down because time and memory are the greatest weapons to, to, uh, to uh, recorded history. And it's difficult for a historian to tell a story if it's not recorded somewhere. So as secretaries or anyone who wants to maybe do it on behalf of the secretary, write a little snippet of what was going on uh, for your members. And then when you come back, put that, put that in the minutes. So we didn't meet during this time, but here's what happened. And now we're, now we're meeting. You know, I, Dave Stewart uh, and I have had kind of conversations about some of the neat things that he's found going through Temple Lodge 16's records, and uh, he talks about like little notes, like the master would jot notes in the in the margin, and uh, the secretary has the record, but the master has a little bit of a <laughs> an influence about what the memory uh, can can have, and and it feels like that's a very powerful tool for us to look back and really understand the personality of our, our who are still our brothers uh, yeah. years past. Yes, I, I agree. And I mean, I've, I've found some things like that. And then I, I've also found some secretaries that might've been bored with their job and I'm looking through each page of the minute book and, and they draw little like uh, characters, like weird um, cartoon characters on the side of the page that with their, with their inkwell. So it's, it's a, uh, you know, instead of taking detailed minutes, they were drawing little pictures, which tells a, a tells a different story. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's fun. It's fun to find all all sorts of um, uh, of different things. Just and the, the way they the way certain things are are, are phrased and, and whatnot. But um, it, but when you come across those in the minutes, it's so much more. You know, you smile too. Like it, you almost feel like you're starting to know the person writing the book versus limited dry notes that don't convey very much. I mean, when I transcribed Finale St. John's number three's first minute book, uh, from seventeen sixty two to that was just uh, from seventeen sixty two to seventeen ninety, it literally said, open, closed, here are the members. Open, closed, and it went on like that for for decades. And it just was like oof, it was it was so boring. And the only thing it provided was trying to associate who was visiting who and who might have uh, you know, got who started in masonry, but other than that, it was it was not not great historical material, and, and it's unfortunate because it's one of the oldest lodges, and it and it has a, a, it was operating in a time period that would have been fascinating to look into had there been a more uh, posterity minded secretary. And a lot of them seem to have good penmanship, but sometimes they weren't loquacious as we like. I, I've looked at some of them; they have these beautiful script. But you need to say something. So you need to add that context. And uh, so even though we type them now so we can understand, uh, we certainly uh, can, so we can get that in there somehow, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And, and typing makes that a little bit easier. Pen, you know, there's two things going on there with, with penmanship. It was, it was took forever to write things out longhand, and paper was expensive. So, you know, you didn't want to use too much of it. And you certainly didn't want to sit there and write three pages for one meeting. Um, sometimes so uh and then you just get those secretaries that just couldn't write or spell for anything and it just i well this is another topic for another day i could talk about <laughs> what kind of paper they use whether it was good quality ink or you know and then it bleeds through the paper it, it you see some you see some really great penmanship and some really nightmare books but well, we definitely have to schedule that one because I've certainly enjoyed our conversation today. And uh, if someone has an interest in history or, or find something unique, how can they reach out and get in touch with you? Yes, uh, just my CT Freemason uh, email, Andrew Melillo, 
um, at ctfreemason.net or um, they can, well, that, that's fine, or they can email my other personal one, which is my last name, dot first name, number 13 at gmail.com. And um, I'm happy to receive any inspiration, ideas, thoughts, uh, or anything that people find that they think is worthy of, uh, of, of uh, uh, writing about or, or recording or putting in the archives, definitely, please. Nothing is, there's no, there's no bad history if it tells the story of a mason or a lodge. Oh, that, that's a great statement. I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate you coming on the show and talking about Spanish flu and I talking about getting those minutes really detailed. That That's something I didn't think we were going to talk about, and we did. So um, I'm happy to share that with the Masonic fraternity. And I really have enjoyed your articles, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. Appreciate it. Um, glad to be on here, and I look forward to our next chat. Sounds great. And this is online with light and we were talking with the grand historian of the state of connecticut right worshipful brother andrew malillo thank you very much and we'll see you on the next show thank you